Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. The Environmental Justice Foundation is an NGO working to protect environmental security as a basic human right. Using powerful films and photography alongside hard-hitting investigations, EJF exposes environmental destruction and ensuing threats to human rights, telling the stories of those at the front lines. EGF takes local fights to the very heart of governments and businesses across the world to secure lasting global change. By providing training for grassroots campaigners, EGF also helps to give a voice to the next generation of environmental defenders, strengthening global action to protect people, wildlife and our shared planet. You can find out more at ejfoundation.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Sir Ronald Cohen to the podcast. Chairman of the Portland Trust and Bridges Ventures, amongst other roles as a philanthropist, venture capitalist, private equity investor and social innovator, Sir Ronnie has been described as the father of British venture capital and the father of social investment. His latest book, Impact, explores his vision of how impact investing is reshaping capitalism. So thank you very much for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Great pleasure to be with you. So um, I'd love to talk to you about your recent book, Impact, and the work you've done over many decades uh, in the various roles in finance and in, in, in impact investment and philanthropy. Uh, but just can you maybe just take a few moments and introduce yourself to the audience, a little bit about your background and what's your current work focus? Okay. Uh, so I'm Sir Ronald Cohen, otherwise known as uh, Ronnie. Um, I spent my career in venture capital and private equity, uh, built up a major firm called Apex uh, Partners, uh, which um, manages many tens of billions of of dollars of uh, private equity today across uh, about 10 countries. At the age of 60, I left Apex to devote my efforts to two subjects, one uh, dealing with social issues in a more effective way, and to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And those uh, efforts over the last 20 years have put me on the path which is described in my book, Impact, have put me on the path of shifting our economies from just seeking profit to seeking profit and impact. And, and, and that's basically um, what I'm here to talk about with you today. Excellent. That's a big topic indeed and a big challenge. Um, and you can tell us how that, that's going. Um, uh, now, uh, we're, we're still dealing with COVID and we're facing all kinds of interlocking environmental crises. Uh, I was wondering what in particular is on your mind right now? What's keeping you awake? What's most worrying you at this point in time? Well, there's no doubt that uh, the issues of uh, climate and social inequality Uh, are the major issues of our time. 
And they keep me up at night because one threatens the planet and the other one threatens our societies. And when we see eruptions like the Gilets Jaunes or Black Lives Matter or other similar eruptions in Chile and the Lebanon, it shows that our system um, is really not working today. Uh, putting it very simply, our economic system is generating problems now that are too big even for governments to handle. And we have to, we have to cope with that. And we have to cope with it in such a way that our economic systems bring solutions to climate challenges and to the issues of social inequality and in particular diversity. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. What makes you feel optimistic at the moment? There's been tremendous momentum on, on, on a number of fronts and um, a lot more younger people getting engaged. Uh, you mentioned some of the movements that we've seen. Yeah. What, what makes you feel optimistic? What When you look around you? Well, when I look around me, I see three big forces now uh, that uh, are working to improve our world very significantly. One is the change of values to which you just referred. Uh, young people not wanting to buy certain types of products, not wanting to work for certain types of companies because they're creating harm um, socially or environmentally. And this has become very evident to investors who also feel the pressure of customers and savers who are contributing to pension funds to use their investments in ways that help solve our problems. So massive flows of capital now, more than $40 trillion, going to achieve impact as well as profit. It's what's called ESG investing, environmental, social, and governance investing, um, and impact investing, of course, which only differs from ESG in that it measures the impact creating, and that's a trillion-dollar um, pool today. So massive change of values. Second major force, huge leaps in technology through artificial intelligence, machine learning, augmented reality, the genome and computing coming together. We are able to deliver positive improvement to people's lives globally in ways humanity could never previously contemplate. And the third major force is measuring the impacts of companies. Technology and big data enable us today to measure the impacts that companies create from their operations on the environment, from their employment on people, and from their products on people and the environment, and to put them in monetary terms, in pounds or dollars or euros, and compare them with their, with their profits. Now, if you take these three forces together, values, technology, transparency, on uh, the impacts of companies, they bring about a massive change in our economies. They basically shift them from 
the traditional basis of risk and return to risk return and impact. And you see the investment money, you see the entrepreneurial talent, you see the talent flowing to big companies, being attracted by companies that have a mission that goes beyond just making money. And that's a massive change. Capitalism is going through a massive transformation. So very, very interesting. And I suppose I, I, I should uh, ask at this, this, this point, um, you, you talk about the, the uh, potential uh, for uh, corporations and for investors in particular to do good and so forth, and the uh, tremendous sums of money and investment that are going into that. But are they not limited by the fiduciary responsibility to maximize financial returns, not just for the ship, for the for, for the corporation and shareholders, but also in terms of the investors themselves? They have a fiduciary responsibility. But firstly, maybe just dealing with this question, you know, the Supreme Court in Delaware will make decisions on this on a daily basis. And have they changed? So you're absolutely right. Uh, that we have several decades of legislation and regulation that have focused the businesses and investors on just making money. But we're beginning to see in many countries in the UK, notably in France, even in the United States, a change now in the definition of uh, responsibilities of directors of companies and uh, trustees of pension funds and charitable endowments to include social and environmental issues alongside profitability when they make investment decisions. And I think the pendulum is swinging now against the notion that businesses should just go and make as much money as they can without giving a thought to the harm they cause socially and environmentally. So you're right, we're beginning to see the change, but we want government to accelerate it. Yeah, it's it's very interesting you you say that. And I guess um, recently we've seen companies like Unilever and uh, also also in France with Danone, um, they have have been penalized in in many ways for their sustainability agenda, for driving in in the direction of sustainability. And uh, this is a big issue, uh, I guess. And I'm just wondering, you know, wh- where do you find solace or, or, or confidence in, in, in this, the, the fact that investors are willing to, uh, you know, I, I guess at, at, at the bottom line, sacrifice financial returns. And this is an interesting question, I'm sure you, uh, this question of whether, how and why and whether, you know, sacrifice financial returns for good behavior. So th- the first point is that you don't need to sacrifice financial returns if you aim to achieve the best balance between risk, return, and impact. Because a business that does good while it does well today can attract customers more easily, talent more easily, investors more easily. And if you think about what's happening now with um, discussions around carbon taxes across the world, Uh, It avoids 
the risk of uh, regulation and taxation. So if you're going to be an entrepreneur today, or if you want to be a leading company in your sector, you really have to optimize risk, return, and impact. But what you can also see now is shareholders becoming active in shaping company policy in ways we haven't seen before. So ExxonMobil, um, a couple of months ago, had a shareholders meeting that imposed three new directors and kicked three existing ones off the board against the wishes of management. Procter & Gamble, another famous US company, at its shareholders meeting had two-thirds of shareholders voting against management because of deforestation, which it causes through its use of palm oil. So we're beginning to see investors now react to these changes in values, react to their influence on future growth and profitability of businesses. And as Larry Fink of BlackRock famously wrote in 2018, if companies want to thrive, then they have to make money while improving the environment and, and, and the lives of, of uh, people. So one, you don't need to trade off um, uh, profit uh, if you're going to do good. In my view, you can make even more money by doing so. And two, the, the game has changed now for companies. The goalposts also have moved. Companies have to achieve profit and impact. And companies that create harm are worth less than their competitors on the stock exchange. And you can see those figures in, in the work at Harvard uh, Business School, uh, which is um, basically bringing impact accounting into existence now. Yes, I mean, it's very interesting you say that. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 um, I suppose somebody might say, well, they would say that, I think would say that. I mean, actually, BlackRock voted against 80% of climate-related resolutions in 2020. So, you know, on the one hand, the rhetoric, or you can say these things, but actually backing that up by action is another matter, I suppose. Um, you know, but we have, you know, talking, talking the talk isn't enough. We have to hold people accountable um, for walking the talk. And, um, and, and BlackRock should be no exception. Absolutely. You talked about the vast sums of money which are going into ESG investments today, and that certainly they are eye-popping. Um, and yet the standards for ESG, the, 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 you know, how that's measured, it, it's a pretty low bar. Uh, there, there, there are many different ways of measuring that. And it seems to be quite a low bar. I was just looking up recently. Yep. And Shell has an A rating from MS, MCSI. Yep. It's an A rating for ESG. And this is, you know, whatever about, there are companies you can debate, but, you know, a fossil fuel company right at the heart of, you know, the, the, the carbon emissions or existential crisis of climate change, and it has an A rating. How, how are we to interpret that? Well, you have to realize that ESG doesn't have any dependable measurement today. It's relying 
uh, on disparate, inconsistent information to do the best job it can. But if you begin to measure the impacts of companies in monetary terms, as Harvard has been doing, you see that Shell creates $23 billion of environmental damage in a single year from its operations without counting the damage from the use of the oil. It compares with $38 billion, uh, which is created by ExxonMobil, and $13 billion, which is created by BP. So they're all massive numbers, but you can see that Shell, far from being a top performer, is just in the middle of the pack. Now, if you don't measure in, in a single unit of measurement, which is, is currency, that enables you to compare environmental and social and impact and profit, then it's very difficult to have proper analysis. And that's why this effort at Harvard is such a breakthrough, because it shows that it is feasible to measure the impacts of companies and to compare them. And once you begin to do that, that transparency then gives the tools to investors and to the rating agencies, incidentally, to do a proper job of reflecting the impacts in a similar way to the job they do in reflecting profits. What makes you, I guess, from your perspective, you're working with large financial institutions, seeing them up close, what what gives you that sense that they will be willing to, to, to sell companies that aren't performing in terms of impact, but are maybe doing very well financially? Well, they're already doing that, and it's reducing the stock market valuations of these companies relative to competitors who pollute less, for example. You can see that in the Harvard data, this $40 trillion dollars has gone to companies that are polluting less. It's also gone to companies that are trying to bring solutions, but it's it's been much more about not doing harm so far than investing in companies that bring solutions. But take Tesla. Okay, there's a lot of debate around Tesla, but let's focus on, on the simple fact that the automobile industry is a very difficult industry to penetrate. And Elon Musk didn't try to penetrate it because he thought it was an easy way to make money, right? He was motivated by desire to shift us away from the combustion engine, and he felt technology enabled us to do that. And single-handedly, he has shifted the whole of the automobile industry to hybrid and electric vehicles. Now, what's it done for his share price? It multiplied seven times in 2020 alone. What's happened to ExxonMobil's share price over the past three years? It's fallen by two thirds. So the weight of the money, even in the absence of very precise information, is already having its effect. Now, how much is $40 trillion? Well, it's half of all professionally managed money in the world. So we're not talking of a flash in the pan here. And of course, some investors will persist in investing in coal and fossil fuels, but it'll be at their expense at the end of the day. 
because the value of their assets is going to fall. The profitability and the value of their companies are going to fall. I remember, you know, I was a venture capitalist in, starting in my mid-20s. And I remember when the tech revolution came along, some people saying, oh, this is just going to change the computer industry. Well, look how wrong they were. The invention of the microchip, of course, revolutionized the computer industry with the personal computer and so on. But it brought the cellular phone, it brought the internet and so on and so forth. And the same is going to happen with impact now. You're going to see impact entrepreneurs using technology to disrupt existing industries. The fossil fuel industry is going to be disrupted by clean energy, right? It's just a question of time. Tens of millions of, uh, of jobs in fossil fuel industries are going to have to be redirected. Uh, people are going to have to be retrained in the same way the smokestack industries uh, declined and tech businesses rose up. And in fact, we didn't do a very good job of uh, training the those who were unemployed in smokestack industries over the last 40 years. So we have to do a better job going forward. So we're going through a period of technological innovation connected with impact. And it's going to change business models as fundamentally as tech did before. You're a great optimist there, and uh, I, I, I salute your, your your optimism and your energy. Of course, to, to, to be candid, when you talk about 40 trillion, we, you know, Philip Morris is on the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. You know, having an ESG moniker uh, oh, yeah. isn't necessarily a sign of very much, really. We'd have to be fair. Well, it's too big to ignore. The, there aren't $40 trillion worth of, of Philip Morris's uh, within, you know, ESG company definitions. Um, it's still very broad brush, too inaccurate, and we need governments to give us the transparency that's required to make intelligent decisions on the basis of impact as well as profit. Now, what... You're asking what makes me optimistic. The SEC is talking about it. The EU is passing legislation about it. The OSCO, which brings the world regulators together, is pressing uh, for transparency on, on, on climate. IFRS, which is responsible for all the counting across uh, the world except for the US, is looking at setting up a board to look at impact measurement, basically. So the world is moving, and in many ways, Corona has accelerated this, uh, this move. It's shaken our habits, our beliefs. It's created an environment where governments are expected to take bold steps. Um, and it's, it's not dissimilar to what happened in the 30s, in the early 30s, after the crash of 29, because investors woke up to realize after the crash that every company could pick its own accounting principles. There were no auditors to verify the numbers 
And they could even put part of their profit into hidden reserves without telling their shareholders. So investors woke up and realized they'd been investing without understanding what profit companies were making. And yes. legislation yes. came in 33 and 34 to introduce generally accepted accounting principles and the use of auditors, and the whole world followed the U.S. Um, uh, subsequently. Same's happening today. We're all yes, it took, many it took many decades for that to happen. Where are we in this process, do you think, now? And over how, what kind of time frame do you expect to see? In my view, in my view we will have mandatory disclosure of, uh, of impacts in financial accounts within three to five years. Right, within that shorter time frame. Yeah, and that's what happened in the 30s. Um, yeah. it, took, yeah. it, you know, it took four to five years. Now, you, you, very interesting. You, you, this question um, of of regulation is an interesting one and uh, essential in many ways. Um, can you talk a little bit about the kind of regulations, the kind of government action that you feel is necessary? And um, I'm particularly interested in terms of uh, something like carbon pricing, which is a, a really important element of any future business financial uh, structure to deal with climate change. So. We need to do what we did with financial accounting, Fergal. We need to get together experts from the accounting profession, regulators, and so on, to set impact accounting principles, like we did with generally accepted accounting principles. Governments have to say, within three years, every company will have to publish accounts that reflect these impacts. We need to define, it's been done at Harvard, um, the ways of, of doing that and, and agree on a, on a method and implement it. Now, it's very difficult for investors to impose that on companies, imposing the same set of accounting principles uh, is, is something only governments can do. So governments have to step in now and fulfill the requirements that investors have for accurate, dependable, comprehensive, verified information on impacts. If governments do that, and I think they're under great pressure to do it, and as I've said, many of them are already moving in that direction. If they do that, the transparency will change the rules of the game for business because business leaders who refuse to reduce their pollution levels will see the price reflected in the fall of their shares. Isn't that, a, a, to some extent, putting uh, expectations on the market side of things? I mean, so share prices can fall, but Shell and BP and Exxon, they're still going great guns in terms of, you know, continuing to explore, continuing to invest in oil, in fossil fuel exploration. Do we not need more regulation? You do. Uh, you, you will, if you have transparency, um, you will go to a fairer tax system. Companies creating harm, it could be environmental harm through CO2 or other uh, emissions or pollution um, will get taxed directly for it. Um, if um, 
companies are using um, uh, child uh, labor. Um, consumers will walk away from them, but governments may well step in and, 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 and forbid it, put penalties for, you know, for doing it, tax the companies, in other words, that are doing it. But you need the transparency as the basis for it. You can't tax profit if you can't measure it, and you can't really provide incentives for impact creation if you don't measure it. So it's foundational. But it also, I guess, involves pretty profound changes. You talk about you can't tax profits if you can't measure them, or you know, vast sums of money are funneled through tax havens. We know that corporations shift profits. They've got tax-efficient systems. So it goes beyond measuring impact, surely. Well, you have to start somewhere. It's taken us nine decades to perfect our financial accounting system, and we still have big judgmental debates about how we recognize the revenues of a company in the software business, for example, or how we recognize a lease obligation on the balance sheet. Okay, so it's a living organism, uh, 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 you know, a set of accounting principles. They change every month. We are in the position now, through technology and big data, to have a robust measurement of the most critical impacts. We may not measure every single impact from the start. That will come as the decades go by. But if we're talking of tackling climate and diversity, we can measure both of those, and we can measure a lot more than that. Uh, we can measure the product impact in, you know, in, in many industries. Um, so you can measure employment impact, product impact, operational impact. And we can make a very robust start now, and you will see the behavior of companies change because it's what consumers, talent, and investors are demanding of them. And governments will step in to provide incentives and penalties uh, to buttress uh, this change in behavior. Because without this change in behavior, we will never deal with our climate issues or with diversity. In fact, you look at the last 40 years of the climate movement, which is um, mainly involved talking to governments and governments talking to each other. Very little has been achieved. Now, finally, things seem to be moving. Because the pollution isn't being created by governments, it's being created by companies, which are funded by investors. And so we have to measure the impacts of companies, and with the help of investors, change the behavior of companies, so that they bring solutions rather than creating or aggravating environmental and social problems. That's, that's a wonderful vision. And um, can you talk a little bit about the investor perspective and maybe link this a little bit to impact investment as well? I mean, impact investment has been around, well, I mean, nominally or, or at least coming up for uh, 15 years since it was you know, so-called, but has been around for longer than that. Um, and yet, a, when I talk to uh, 
people involved in impact investment and social entrepreneurs and, and different funds and so forth, the actual amount of concessionary finance seems to be quite limited. The, the, the number of investors that are actually willing to take a lower return for yeah. good actions and so forth. And this is a sector which, as you mentioned, is, is I think, a, a trillion dollars. It's some kind of measurements. Yeah. Uh, difficult, difficult to pin down. But this sector itself, which is predicated on this very idea, has shown that really only a very small amount of investors are willing to make that trade-off. And can you talk a little bit about professional investors, yeah. institutional investors that have this producer responsibility on top of that and, and how that will play out? How will they be able to say, we, uh, we're going to invest in this even though it's the financial returns? First of all, you're assuming that you need tons of concessionary finance in the market in order to be able to change the impact that companies deliver. Well, you certainly need some concessionary finance, but what we want to do is for every company seeking to deliver market rates of return to find ways of doing that and deliver impact at the same time. And my personal view as an investor, and I've been investing in high-tech, early-stage impact companies for a few years now, is that actually this is the next big growth opportunity. Investing in clean energy, investing in remote education, investing in remote health, investing in fintech to make those who are unbanked capable of borrowing. And I can go on and on through 10, 15 different industries where I see different entrepreneurs coming up with business models that seek to improve the world. Now, let me give you an example just to bring it to life. I'm talking to you from Tel Aviv today, and there's a company in Israel called Orcam, which I mentioned in my book, Impact. Orcam was set up by very gifted entrepreneurs who sold their business out to Intel for $15 billion. Billion. The founder decided to set up a company to help the blind to see. A pair of spectacles with a memory stick-like device hanging off the side that whispers into the ear of the wearer the page of the book or the newspaper they're holding recognizes 300 faces, can translate from different languages, and so on and so forth. Now, you'd say, wow, what an amazing impact venture. 35 million blind people, 250 million visually impaired people can actually have their lives improved by this device, become more productive, and the company will do well because there's huge demand for its product. But if you think as an impact entrepreneur, you ask yourself the question, how can this technology help the biggest number of people in the world? And you get a very surprising answer. You get the answer that uh, if you are able to provide these spectacles to the 800 million illiterate adults in the world, 
this could well transform their lives and their livelihoods and, and even the world economy to bring 800 million people who can't read to have the ability to read in inverted commas. So this illustrates the fact that when you begin to think in terms of risk return and impact, you not only reduce the risks of regulation and taxation, you open up vistas of new markets that you would never have thought about in conventional risk return uh, thinking. And now all of a sudden, Orcam can have a market of 1.1 billion people. Okay, now I see ventures I see ventures in the software industry, which are working on um, improving the scheduling and the management of public transport. I see them now measuring the emissions they save by matching smaller vehicles to demand at different times of, of day, by optimizing routes according to the changing demand. I see them measuring the saving in commuting time for the more vulnerable populations that tend to commute. I see them measuring the number of hours the drivers are working to make sure that they have reasonable working conditions. And I see them measuring number of accidents that are being caused and, and you know, and plotting um, a, a reduction uh, in them. Okay, this is the way to do business in the 21st century. And those who don't give a damn and just want to make money and don't care if they pollute or if they create social problems around them are just going to find that it's not a good way to do business. They won't be as successful, as simple as that. It's like trying to be successful when technology arrived without using technology. Those who refused to see the arrival of technology paid a very heavy price. And the same is gonna happen with impact. Very interesting. I, I, I've done a couple of podcast series on, on the whole question of social innovation and maybe social entrepreneurs and have no doubt, uh, as you say, how exciting it is, the potential, the, the, the vision, the commitment, the dramatic social change that's possible. Absolutely. Uh, it was quite interesting. You talked about avoiding the risks of regulation and taxation. I'm wondering, <laughs> calling them risks um, is, is I, I, I just a, 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 a way of language. But this question of regulation is, is important. And you're talking about um, the the, the uh, investors and their interests and, uh, as, as it were, um, putting pressure on government to put in place regulations. I mean, the history of corporate life has not been one of, in general, corporations asking for more regulation. Of course not. Of course not. And, and many businesses today push back on the idea of impact transparency. About 100 have espoused it and thousands are waiting to see which way the wind is going to blow. But many are opposing it. Uh, just as, by the way, they oppose uh, the establishment of generally accepted accounting principles in the 30s, saying it can't be done, and if it can be done, then you're going to wreck American capitalism forever. 
you know? And we're hearing the same sort of wording even, um, you know, today. Yes, yeah. Right? Yes, yes. And in terms of voluntary regulations, it, they don't no, seem to work no. very well. I don't believe in voluntary. Um, you may you may go to voluntary through, under pressure of investors on the way to mandatory because governments take too long to act. It has to be mandatory. Yeah. Very interesting. Impact measurement has been a very challenging question. Is that changing? And what? How, how do you see that so changing? I believe there's been a breakthrough. The work of the last 10 or 15 years on metrics has been built upon at Harvard. We monetize now the best metrics and we come to figures. You look at 3,000 companies in the data set that you can find on the HBS, Harvard Business School, IWA, Impact Weighted Accounts website. 3,000 companies, Fogel. 450 of them create more damage in a year than they make profit. 1,000 create damage equivalent to a quarter or more of their profit. Together, they create $4 trillion of damage in a single year. And most interestingly, you can see a correlation between those that pollute more and lower stock market valuations for them. So you can see the weight of the $40 trillion we, can, we were talking about. So impact measurement has had a major breakthrough now. Because of computing and big data, 10 years ago, we wouldn't have been able to do it. But now it's possible. The world doesn't realize this. COP26 has the opportunity to make the world realize it. Because that is the future. It's the future of capitalism. It's the future of society. And it's the future of our planet. What one or two other things do you think need to happen to bring this transparency to its we need next stage, the to SEC conclusion? In the United States and the regulators in Europe and the EU in particular to come together now and to establish a single set of global impact principles and to mandate that starting three years from now, companies have to prepare impact-weighted accounts. That's the one thing that will really begin to change our ability to bring solutions to our climate challenges and to our social inequalities. That's a great vision. You, you so can, where can, you can we find, find your my book, book in uh, your favorite bookshops and in Amazon? It's also being translated into 10 languages. It's already out in German and, um, and French. Um, all of the royalties are going to impact charities. Very good. Well, I wish you the very best of success with that, with your, all the work you've done. 
and sharing you. today so your you thoughts do. and insights. If you enjoyed this episode, we think you'll enjoy Jeremy Lent's new book, The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. Jeremy sees the multiple crises we are facing as symptoms of an underlying worldview of disconnection that has passed its expiration date. The Web of Meaning provides an intellectually solid foundation of an alternative worldview of connectedness, weaving together findings from modern science with insights from Buddhism, Taoism and indigenous knowledge. It offers a coherent, integrated worldview that could enable humanity to thrive sustainably on a flourishing planet. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.